0: These fellows have some Bibles for you to get their attention and receive so you can follow along as we look at Hebrews 10. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand, they'll get one to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word, so that is our gift to you. Please take one at least for today so that you can follow along. It's marked, so you just open up to where the bookmark is at Hebrews chapter 10. I can still remember the sense of disequilibrium. What's that? It just means something that just kind of throws you off balance. It sends you for a bit of a loop. I can remember being set off balance a bit when I read as a young adult through the New Testament. And I compared what I was reading to what I had experienced as a Christian and in the life of the church as a whole. Because as I read and I made that comparison, there seemed to me to be a great gap, a chasm between what I was and what I saw around me and what I was reading about God's people and the church in the New Testament. When I would read that brothers and sisters were imprisoned for following Jesus, it was so far from my experience. And so far from your experience as well. One reason it's so remote from our existence is because we, in fact, live in relative ease. No persecution. Freedom of religion. Freedom to carry out the mission to which Jesus has called us. We need to understand that that can change. And, in fact, things are changing. And what at one time seemed so far and distant from us is coming closer all the time. It is a simple fact. With the advent of technologies and travel, the world, as it were, is is shrinking. A best-selling book that I read with great interest a couple of years ago is titled, The World is Flat. And it's describing how there's a, a great leveling that's taking place in our world. And we have the rise of now powers like China and India and countries within Africa. And so there's a leveling of great proportions that's taking place in our day. And you have immigration that's coming here, bringing new ideas, even new religions. What is freedom of religion going to look like in the next generation or the generation after that? I don't know what all of this geopolitical stuff Means. But I think it's really cool that I just said geopolitical. (laughs) But I do know this that what was once far away in time and in space is getting closer in terms of both. And I don't know what that will mean for our freedoms, and I hope and pray they remain, but for now we still serve in relative ease, and there is still this disconnect because of that. But there's a disconnect of another type between us and them, them being those we read about in the New Testament. Yes, indeed, our circumstances are different. But unfortunately, so are our values and our attitudes and our commitments quite different from what we read in the New Testament. And because that's the case, when we read things like what is in our passage today, there is this disconnection all over again. Take a look at verse 34 of Hebrews 10. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possession. Their values and attitude and commitment seem so different from mine. And I think if you're honest, you would say so different from yours as well. You see, it's, it's often easier to live for Christ, hear this, in great difficulty than it is in great ease. And we live in great ease and even prosperity, even with the economic situation as it is right now. It is, let me repeat, often easier to stand in ease than it is in difficulty. Hannibal of Carthage was one of the great generals in history, and he was the one general who had routed the Roman army. He alone, Hannibal alone, had conquered the conquerors. But the Romans were a people who often lost a battle, but they seldom lost a campaign. And winter came, and the campaign that Hannibal was executing against the Roman army had to be suspended. And he wintered his troops at a place called Capua, which he had earlier captured. It was a city of luxury. And one winter in that city did what the Roman army could not. One winter there, with its luxury, so sapped the morale of his troops that when the spring came and the campaign was resumed, they were unable to stand before the Romans. Ease had ruined when struggle had only toughened them. And do you know that's true very often in the Christian life as well? Often a man or woman can meet with honor, a great time of trial and, and difficulty. But it's the routine of every day which often saps our strength and weakens our faith. And we live and have lived our entire lives in such a time. God warned his people before they went into the promised land about this problem, not with adversity, this problem with ease. And how it is so easy to become complacent and lose our morale and lose our edge when we live in relative ease. And so the Lord told His people as they entered the Promised Land, back in Deuteronomy 8, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. And notice what the Lord says. First thing I want you to do is I want you to remember. And in verse 32 of our passage in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says to those to whom he's writing, First thing you need to do now, as you've had some successes and you're experiencing a lull in the persecution, first thing you need to do is remember. So God told his people, remember how the Lord your God led you. He says, remember and be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise... When you eat and are satisfied, you will build fine houses and settle down. And when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. It is often easier to live for God in adversity than it is in relative ease for this very reason. And the Lord concludes that chapter by saying, but again, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Friends, we are called as people who live in relative ease to remember what the Lord our God has done for us. And two, based upon that remembrance, respond then with persevering faith and confidence in the one who has called us and who is with us in the mission to which he has called us. It means, as we're going to see in our text today, that we simply must stop doing what I so often do. And perhaps you so often do. We come on Sunday... We go through the motions. We sing the past, the verses. And then we leave unchanged. Our values, our commitments, our attitudes still very much unlike those that we read about in the Word of God. And so we read, Faith of our fathers, living still. In spite of dungeon, fire and sword. And then that, that... song actually has a, a lyric in it that says, What a great privilege it would be if our children, like those who have gone before, could give their lives for thee. How many times have we sung that? But we really have to ask ourselves, do we really mean that? Do we mean that about our children giving themselves completely and wholly, fully to the Lord God and His cause? Do we mean that about our children? Do we mean that about ourselves? So I invite you to follow along as we look at Hebrews chapter 10, where we're going to learn what I tell you in the take-home truth in your outline, that we must remember, recall Jesus' work in us in the past so that we can continue to live for Jesus' in the present. Verse 32 begins, Remember those earlier days. After you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. One of the things that we need to remember is what Jesus has done in the past through us. And that's what the writer of Hebrews calls his readers to recall, to remember. Jesus has done these things through you. And one of the things that Jesus has done is show His strength, His power, through you at times in the past. He reminds them that there was a time in those earlier days, after you were saved, after you received the light, you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. What does it refer to? It probably refers to a persecution that occurred in 49 A.D. This book was written in the mid-60s A.D., about 15 years after a persecution that was carried out by the Roman emperor Claudius. So we're about 15 years after a time when they had this great struggle and the historian Suetonius remarked regarding that persecution under Claudius. He said, quote, there were riots in the Jewish quarter. Let me just pause there for a moment and remind you That the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. And so he says there were riots in the Jewish quarter at the instigation of Christus. And as a result, Claudius expelled the Jews. And historians believe that Christus is a reference to Christ. There were riots in the Jewish quarter at the instigation of Christ. And as a result, Claudius expelled the Jews. And in verse 32, when it says, you stood your ground in a great, it says, contest. The word contest is the word from which we get our English word, athletic. He's saying, you stood your ground and you were athletically agile and willing to stand before your opponent face to face in a great contest and take him on. The Roman Emperor Claudius Remember. How you stood your ground, says the writer. The great English reformer Hugh Latimer once preached before Henry VIII and in his message he offended the king with his boldness. And so he was summoned to preach before the king the following weekend and to issue an apology. As Latimer began to speak, he spoke out loud to himself in the presence of the king And in the presence of those who were there. Here's what he said. Hugh Latimer. Do you know before whom you are this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch. The king's most excellent majesty. Who can take away your life if you offend. Therefore take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. But then consider well Hugh. Do you not know from where you come, upon whose message you are sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all-present and who sees all your ways and who is able to cast your soul into hell? Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully. And then Latimer proceeded to preach the same sermon he preached the week before but with more energy. Remember how you withstood opposition as an athlete who says in effect, bring it on. I have prepared and it was for this reason that I have been brought here. The Lord my God will show His strength and His power through me. And so we're called to remember Jesus shows His strength through us. Now, you don't have that testimony. I don't have that testimony. We may be called, our children, our grandchildren may be called to have a testimony just like that. We don't. But the truth of the matter is, after you had received the light, after you had come to Jesus, there was an enthusiasm in you. Every new Christian has that enthusiasm. You know what I'm talking about. Such that you were willing to take on whatever came your way, weren't you? And you didn't care who knew. You didn't care who knew that Jesus is now your Lord and your Master. And if it meant ridicule at work and among your family members, that was okay. But as life goes on, and as Jesus told us in the parable of the soils, very often life encroaches. And we say, you know, I need to get that promotion. I need to be a little quieter about this faith that I have. And things begin to wane, and you become like the rest of us who are in the situation that most of us find ourselves a more apathetic rather than active standing for Jesus. Jesus shows his strength through us. But he also shows his care and concern through us. Verse 33. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. When the writer says, there were times where, back then, you were publicly exposed. It's the Greek word, theatrizo. We get our English word, theater, from it. And he's saying that there were times where you were placed in front of opposing crowds in such a way that you were part of a sort of theater of the absurd. And you were insulted and you were reviled He says you were exposed in that theater to insult and to persecution. A persecution that squeezed and pressured you. It's one thing to have the persecution. It's another thing to have all of the insults and the reviling from those that know you. The last part of verse 33 says there were times where you stood side by side with those who were so treated. There were times when you were not directly treated that way, but your brothers and sisters were, and you did not turn away in cowardice and say, I don't know them, I don't know what that's about. Rather, you linked arms with them. As an active athlete who protects his teammate, you all know what I'm talking about. Believe it or not, I played hockey. At one time, one time. No, When I was a kid, I played for a number of years, and it's still my favorite sport. But in hockey, as in all sports, if an opposing player harms one of your players, a real teammate comes to his or her rescue, do they not? And that's what's being said here. As an athlete, you stood side by side, and you came to the rescue of those who were being so treated. And in showing the care of Jesus through you, Verse 34, you sympathized with those in prison. This word sympathized means to have fellow feeling. It's the same word that we saw back in chapter 4 and verse 15, where the writer of Hebrews tells us, Jesus, our great high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet he was without sin. It tells us he sympathizes. And if you remember back then, Many messages ago, when we looked at Hebrews chapter 4, I said that this word sympathizes is similar to what musicians call harmonic vibration, where a piano tuner can have two pianos in the same room. He's tuning one of them, and as he hits the key on one piano, there is a sympathetic harmonic vibration in the other. It's as if the one piano can feel what's going on with the other. And that's what's being said here about fellow Christians. You were fellow in fellows in feeling what was happening with them. And so you sympathized with those in prison, but you didn't simply sympathize and say, I'll pray for you, but undoubtedly they visited them. And here's why I say that. Because prison back in those days was not prison like it is now prison's no fun to be it's no fun to be locked up incarcerated under any conditions our friends the conditions that we have in the united states our country club compared to the conditions in other parts of the world and certainly in new testament times the truth is in order for a prisoner to survive he had to survive by the gifts brought by visits from friends and family they brought him food and water. And if they didn't bring him food and water, he could not survive. And so they would visit and bring food and water and clothing. And in doing so, they would put themselves in danger because now they are aligning themselves with this criminal who's aligned with Christus, Jesus. And in doing, in so doing, they were doing what our Lord Jesus said. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me sick, and you looked after me in prison. And you came to visit me. Jesus shows his care through us. And the question then is, friends, in a life of relative ease, is Jesus showing his strength and his care through you and me who proclaim his name and are part of his church. The writer says Jesus shows his priorities through us as well. Verse 34 again, the middle part. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting Possessions. Hmm. So you think about your possessions. And as you think about, as I think about your possessions, my possessions, stop right there and ask yourself, do I really have any possessions? Is there anything that really does belong to me? Are they really your possessions? Are they mine? What do you have, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive from the hand of a gracious God? But we want to hold on. We want to hold on to that which is not ours to begin with. And it becomes absurd in a consumeristic culture like ours. One author spoke of an advertisement that appealed to the desire of many to hold on to hold on to their household pets. Household pets don't have a long life expectancy, and the advertisement was for freeze-drying. I'm not making this up. According to the ad, most people who have their pets freeze-dried do so because, quote, they want to keep their pets around a little longer. The process takes several months. The pet will remain natural, look- looking for up to 20 years after being freeze-dried. Price ranges from 400 to 1400 depending on the size of the pet. We want to hold on. We want to hold on to our stuff. And so, here soon, our financial team is going to be giving many of you your year-end financial statement, giving statement. And I don't know, as a matter of policy at our church, who gives what. I only know what one person in our church gives, and that's me. That's it. So I don't know who gave, who didn't give, who gave a lot, who gave a little. And it will remain that way on purpose. But those who gave will receive a year-end giving state. And one of the questions you're going to need to ask yourself, all of us are, is it what I gave or is it what I invested? You see, when when you give to the Lord, you're really not giving anything that belonged to you to begin with. And further when you give away in the Lord's mission, you're actually investing. You say, well, I know about investments. Perhaps you have some. What's my return on investment? Your return on investment is eternal reward seen in the people who come to Jesus, seen in the people who are taught in Jesus. And so we need to ask ourselves, What? how do I view these possessions that I so often want to hold on to and I see them as mine and I'm giving them and it's my hard earned hard earned money. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of values do I have as opposed to those in the New Testament church that creates this disconnect. When I can see children on television who are starving in other parts of the world. I just came back from India, many of you know I saw that firsthand. And who among us is not moved when you see that? Very often moved, let's be honest, to change the channel. But we are more moved by by material deficiency than we are by spiritual deficiency. Do you understand, friend, that we live in a culture right here in America that is a post-Christian culture? And people all around you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior and are not honoring him with their lives and all that he has entrusted to them. So you can see that we have this disconnect in the way we view ourselves and the way we view others and the way we view our stuff. As we view ourselves, we're very keen to take care of the body but neglect the spirit. As we view others, their material needs move us, but not so much their spiritual needs. As we view our stuff, we see it as our stuff and our money, rather than an investment of his stuff and his money. And in so doing, we're failing to live up to what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. I've often thought that this passage in Hebrews 10 and verse 34, joyfully accepting the confiscation of your property. I mean, what, a phrase is, what kind of phrase is that? joyfully accepted the confiscation of your stuff. How many times have you heard a message in your entire Christian life, have you heard a message on that? And I would be willing to hazard to guess that perhaps no one can remember hearing that phrase expounded. Here's another one from 1 Corinthians 7 that you probably haven't heard much about. Where Paul said, those who buy something should live as if it were not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Sometimes you've heard me quip that one of the things many of us need to do is we need to take a look at the verses in our Bible that are not underlined. Because those are the ones that perhaps we've neglected. The Bible has much to say about our values and our attitudes and our commitments. And you see what I mean when I say I read through the New Testament as a young adult and I saw this great disconnect, this this throwing me off kilter as I read what they were about and what Jesus calls us to and yet what so many of us do. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Our Declaration of Independence says this, that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty, and you all can fill it in, the pursuit of happiness. It's my right as an American. And God's a good American, so it's my right as an American to pursue happiness. That same phrase, slightly modified, is in the Seventh Amendment to our Constitution. Where it says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, and then it says, or property. Without due process of law. Now think about your property then. As an American, it's my stuff, it's my land. You step foot on my land, you'll die. And then read Hebrews 10.34. Joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Now you've heard me define joy plenty of times. Joy is not happiness. I would not be happy about that. I would resist that. You should resist that. Thank God that we have these rights. We ought to exercise those. I would resist that. I would not be happy about it. But if the power, even if the power is not authorized, an unauthorized power, as happened in this case, forces itself on me and takes my property, I need to understand that joy means God is at work in my life, regardless of the circumstances. Therefore, I can joyfully accept the confiscation of what does not belong to me to begin with. And in the meantime, I get more excited and more motivated about the mission to which Jesus has called us than I do about the political ramifications of a flattening world, joyfully accepting the confiscation of their property. Remember, friends, that Jesus shows his strength through us and Jesus shows his care through us and Jesus shows his Priorities through us. We need to be reminded. And why do we need to be reminded? Because we forget. And secondly. That reminding is often the means that God uses to rekindle the embers of our spiritual fire. When we're reminded. We're challenged by our own past character. As we look and say remember when we stood our ground in a great contest of suffering. We'll remember our own past character and we're reminded anew of the power of God to sustain and to deliver us, come what may. We're reminded because we forget, because God uses it to rekindle the embers of our spiritual fire, to challenge us as we remember our past character and remind us of the power of God in the present. Because God wants us not only to begin the Christian walk well, He wants us to end it well also. And for that to happen, we must regularly, in between, remember. If we do, it will motivate us to respond properly in the present. And that's what I have for you secondly in your outline. We not only must remember what Jesus has done through us, we have to respond to that. And how do we respond? Verse 35. Based on all of that, notice the first word, so based on all that God has done through you in the past. Now, so, because of that, on that basis, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. We are to respond first with confidence. There are times when folks experience what's called a crisis of, you've heard that phrase, crisis of confidence. The financial markets. And you'll hear daily, if you listen to the news on the radio, as I do very often, they'll give a market report, and they'll say consumer confidence is up or down. Or investors are having a crisis of confidence in the market, and so they're selling, they're not investing. One such crisis of confidence occurred with a man named Carl Walinda. Some of you may remember the Flying Walinda family. I remember seeing them. They were a tightrope tight walking family. The entire family participated. They would often do it without nets beneath them. And I remember seeing them at the old Olympia Stadium. So I'm giving away my age when I was a kid. In the 70s. A few years later, Carl Walenda, the father of the flying Walenda family, fell 75 feet to his death in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Here's what his wife recalled about that she said all carl thought about for three straight months prior to it was falling it was the first time he had ever thought about that and it seemed to me that he put his all his energies into not falling rather than walking the tightrope mrs Welinda added that her husband even went so far as to personally supervise the installation of the tightrope making certain the guy wires were secure she says that's something he had never even thought of doing before His loss of confidence portended and even contributed to his death, though his past performances gave him every reason to be confident. Sometimes called now the Walinda factor. And the truth is, there should be no Walinda factor in the Christian walk. There should be no crisis of confidence at any time because Jesus' past performance is a predictor of future results. What he has done, he can do, and he will do. The question is, do you believe that? Are you confident in the confession that we have made regarding who Jesus is and what he has done? And if so, we can be the athlete that we once were, standing for him, come what may. Do not throw away confidence in what we believe about Christ. And positively, it's not just what we don't do then. In turn, it's what we do. It means to confess Christ in the midst of whatever circumstances. Like Peter and John before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Or like Hugh Latimer before Henry VIII. We're to respond with confidence. lastly, we are to respond with persevering faith. Persevering faith. Verse 37. In just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. The writer of Hebrews is saying nothing less than persevering in what we say we believe is a sure mark Of whether or not we truly belong to Christ. If we shrink back, we will be destroyed. We may profess salvation, but if we shrink back, we do not persevere. It means we never had salvation. And so he's making a call, confident that those to whom he's writing really are not just professors, but possessors of salvation. And so he's reminding them and he's calling them back to what they once were. He's confident they will respond. And I am confident that we will respond likewise because we have the Spirit of God. But hear this, it is not optional. And those who do not and those who continue to live according to the values and attitudes and commitments of the culture and the world instead of those given to us by Jesus when we came to <clears throat> excuse me, when we came to him, Show thereby that we never belonged to him. This is a quotation. You notice it's in quotes in verse 37. Down through the end of verse 38. It's a quotation from Habakkuk, chapter 2 in your Bible. And it was written by Habakkuk in a time of complete economic collapse. And now it's being quoted by the writer of Hebrews... To this little church who has, 15 years earlier, had their stuff taken by Emperor Claudius in 49 AD. And now, unbeknownst to them, they are on the eve of another persecution in 65 AD under Nero. And he is asking them, do you believe, verse 38, my righteous one will live by what is faith? It's the same word in your New Testament for belief. My righteous one will live by what he or she believes. Do you still believe? It appeared you believed 15 years ago. Do you believe now? Will you believe tomorrow when Nero comes and takes more of your stuff? Remember, friend. Jesus shows his strength and his care and his priorities through us, and we must respond with confidence in the confession we have made about who he is and what he has done. And in persevering faith, come what may, remember and respond. God told his people over and over again in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, remember who I am and what I've done for you. You recall that after their 40-year sojourn, In the wilderness, Joshua led God's people across the Jordan into the promised land. They went into a place called Gilgal, And in so doing, God parted the Jordan for them to go through. And 12 of the leaders, one from each tribe, stood on dry land, stood on muddy land, I should say, in the midst of those withheld banks of water. And they piled up 12 stones, the Bible tells us, one for each tribe. And they created a, an altar there to thank the Lord, to remember what He has done. And then they crossed over to the other side and they took 12 more stones. And they put a memorial together there. And then God's people went across. And after they had come across, the waters came crashing in. And they had their memorial at Gilgal. And time and time again, throughout the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, God's people are summoned to come back there and remember what the Lord your God has done for you and respond based upon remembering who He is and what He has done. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is calling this young church to do. And that's what God through him is calling this young church to do. Realize. Our values and our attitudes and our commitments. To put it another way, he's telling us, be what you were at your best. Be what you were at your very best. Never sink below your best. How do I do that? Let me make one recommendation to you and we'll be finished. You say, I don't know quite how to get started. Let me just suggest to you that you avail yourself of the great blessing that you have being involved in a community of faith like this because God in His grace, Jesus in His grace, has given us men and women who get it. Men and women who know what commitment to Jesus is about. I thank God for the many, many servants who have sold out to Christ who are part of this fellowship if you say, you know, I don't see myself as one of those, but I want to be. God has reminded me. I encourage you to look at them. Look no further than the leadership team that God has graciously given to this church. And these men and women who are on our leadership team do not want me to say things like this about them. But I want them to be held up as the example that they are called to be. And God has given us that leadership team to be models to you of what it means to sell out to Jesus. Just over the last couple of weeks, I have seen families giving themselves, realigning everything they're doing for the sake of those who have lost loved ones in our church. And then this weekend, preparing for a family meeting. And and after the family meeting, we're going to have a leadership team meeting. And there are people just giving themselves fully to the work of Jesus. Jesus. These are people who get it. And people that you're blessed to rub shoulders with. I encourage you to see them and emulate their faith. As Paul said over and over again throughout Scripture, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's bow before our Lord. Our Father and our God, we come before you, Lord, with hearts, my heart, is convicted of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a relative time of ease. We all have our difficulties living in a fallen world. You know all about them, Lord God. You've designed every last one of them for our good and for your glory. None of them take you by surprise, and they they seem so monumental to us. Lord, help us to remember with the great apostle that the difficulties we have here compared to eternity are what he called momentary. And they are really light. And in light of what your people have had to endure throughout the history of your church, and in light of what some of your people are enduring now, what we go through is quite easy. Lord, that ease has these temptations for me and for us to forget, to forget who we've been called to serve, to forget what he has done through us and can continue to do through us. So thank you for this reminder, convicting though it be. And I pray throughout this room that commitments, recommitments commitments are being made to the Lord our God to realign our values with what the New Testament says so there's not this disequilibrium, this disconnect that we so often feel and we simply ignore Realigning our commitments and our values and our attitudes. Oh, Lord Jesus, you've given us such a marvelous opportunity in this place with these dear saints. To reach those that you have in this city and beyond. Thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for what you've shown yourself to be in the past. And thank you that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so past performance on his part does indeed predict future results. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. We want to demonstrate that love in how we live for you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.